Hi, everyone. Joining us today is Dr. Dominic Perrot, who is currently a professor in the Department of Psychology at Georgia State University and the Director of Clinical Training and Chair of the Clinical Psychology Program. He is one of the faculty for the Center for Research on Interpersonal Violence through Georgia State University. A focus of his work is on alcohol-related aggression, intimate partner aggression, and campus sexual violence. As is normal for my show, we take a winding road and cover many topics that are simply not talked about enough in our society. I hope this opens a doorway for you to making these conversations more comfortable for you. Thanks for joining us. I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily. I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me. Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show... After several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Good morning, listeners. I am here with Dr. Dominic Parat. Dominic, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I want our listeners to get an idea, you know, they've heard the introduction about what you do, but I always love to ask before we get into our winding road conversations, um, why this specific research and, and this focus in your career? Um, why, why did this end up being what it is that you do? Uh, yeah, I've been asked that question a number of times. Um, you know, it, <laughs> The, the, the truly personal answer is as, a, as an undergraduate at the University of Pittsburgh, knowing I wanted to go into clinical psychology, in psychology more generally, uh, I was talking with one of my professors who was giving me some ideas of different research labs I could work in. And none of them really sounded, they, they didn't strike me until she said, well, you know, a colleague of mine does research on alcohol use and smoking and participants come into their lab and drink alcohol and they measure how that affects them and it was kind of like immediately without much thought I was like that sounds really interesting um I didn't have a at the time a whole lot of I just knew I was attracted to that Mm -hmm. uh and I think over time as I went to graduate school and have been here at Georgia State for, for a number of years uh it's just become clear to me that you know, in our culture and in other cultures, people drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everybody drinks, but people drink. It's ingrained in our in our culture. Right. And and not um, everyone becomes aggressive or violent either. That's right. That, yeah. That, yeah, that's right. And uh, uh, but the impact, the negative impact of alcohol is is is, is real and and far reaching. And and you know what I've unfortunately come to know over the years is we don't have really great interventions um, or approaches to reduce alcohol related violence. And, and so the, the the work in this area, I think is just, you know, not just really interesting to me, just kind of naturally, but um, the the, the public health relevance, I think is just kind of unquestionable, undeniable. Absolutely. That I think, you know, being in the field that I'm in where I talk to, I mean, the show is Mental Health News Radio. So mm-hmm. ev- any topic under that header, which is large, is is up for conversation. And um, I have not had 
this a conversation about alcohol and aggression before, which I think is interesting. And my listeners know, you know, things that come into play into my life will also come into play into this particular show. So I've certainly been around people in my family who have had an issue with alcohol and aggression, but I haven't dealt with that in my um, personal life in a long time. And I'm approaching 50 until recently where I had um, something happen with a female who is older than I am and who definitely has been drinking hard alcohol for a very, very long time. But I had never been around them over a long period of time, you know, several hours while they were drinking. And um, it was interesting to see, it was interesting and also frightening and traumatizing to watch um, tiredness, maybe jet lag, uh, stress in their life, plus drinking during the day all the way to the evening and watching their behavior get worse and worse and worse and then direct that behavior at me. Yeah. It was it was frightening and to be in a position of I didn't know what to do. There was no there really wasn't a way for me to call for help. Other people that were there were coming to me because this person kept passing out on the drive that we were all doing. Thank God they weren't driving, but other people were sort of coming to me and saying, oh, you need to be careful. You know, your friend, she drink a lot, you know, that kind of thing. And, yeah. and I, and I was felt completely trapped and in a sense I was. And, um, and what, what you do, because when someone is that um, drunk and this is a long time, it's not just, you know, one time, a long standing um, drinking problem, there's no controlling their behavior or, telling them, hey, you're drinking too. I mean, anything is going to incite their anger. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 there's a lot to unpack there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe we can kind of take it piece by piece and see. Great. Know, but, um, you know, the first thing you, that, that in that example is, uh, at least if I'm, you know, hearing you correctly, is that the person we're talking about, uh, had a long-standing what we call an alcohol use disorder. Mm-hmm. What kind of, in the lay public, they'll say, "Oh, that person's an alcoholic." Right. And so, this is someone who's drinking frequently, and when they're drinking, they're drinking heavily, um, and they're that kind of person that you know, after they've consumed so much alcohol, like something just kind of switches. Where right. They're they're just kind of there's no turning back. <laughs> in that particular day or, or episode. Um, and you know, the first thing, you know, we talk about with, you know, how do you reduce or address alcohol related violence is to not drink. Right. Right. Pretty simple. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a lot of the work that's been done to reduce alcohol related violence, for instance, in couples, right. Where, mm-hmm. where one of the partners is a, is a heavy drinker is to do psychosocial interventions, therapy, essentially, or couples mm-hmm. therapy, to help that person stop drinking. Right. Or at least reduce their drinking to a significant level. And you know, those interventions might focus on the individual person. They might use the couple or the relationship as a good supportive framework for helping that person to reduce or stop their drinking. Mm-hmm. And these interventions have shown some success. Right. And, and and that's a good thing. So if we can have people stop drinking, then then you can't have alcohol cause violence. You know, the the other thing, and this is a this doesn't flow exactly from what I just said, but you know, what do you do when you're in that situation where someone's just kind of so far past the line? And, right. Um, and it does feel it can feel helpless, or, or you know, like to not really know what to do. You know, a lot of our work has focused on uh, people who are drunk, but let's just say not so drunk that they're just like unable to really process what's going on. Um, Right. You know, people at blood alcohol levels, you know, between 0.08 and 0.1 or 0.11, which is clearly drunk, you know, uh, above the legal limit for driving in most, if not every state. Um, Right where there's definitely a lot of impairment, but you know, 
by and large, people are still able to kind of like sit up straight if they have to, although they might wiggle back and forth a little bit or, right. Um, you know, and, and, and with those folks uh, at that level of intoxication, you know, and I can talk about this more in depth later, uh, we, we, what we're looking at a lot of times is, you know, what people are focusing on in their environment, how they're processing information in their environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the person you were describing, it's, it's almost as if they're not really processing what's going on. They're just, no. they're just moving in some direction. Who knows what's going to happen? Right, and it becomes like a feral animal situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that and, and that ties back again. You know, I can I hear how that can that can feel really helpless. And I mean, I've you know, I think I mean I've been in that sort of situation um, uh, where someone was was in that kind of a state, and it's like, what do you do? Right. Um, and I just think that like the safety of that person and the safety of others, however you can accomplish that. You know, right. There's no, I don't think necessarily silver bullet answer but you know how, how can you and other people in that situation work together to kind of help keep everybody safe right and that's kind of related to the idea of kind of bystanders and other people in situations who can uh, be of help which is something we've also uh, be- began to study um, right I saw the uh, bystander intervention for sexual violence on yep. on your um, university website so well are there is there a difference in maybe types of alcohol that can trigger, like if it's wine or beer or if whatever, like is, can alcohol play a role, the type of alcohol play a role in, in someone, the nature of someone's violence or triggering that violent um, part of their alcoholism? Yeah, that's a question that is sometimes asked because, you know, people will have the, uh, the experience of, oh, when so-and-so drinks whiskey, Mm-hmm. look out you know but if they're right. drinking beer you know don't look out as much <laughs> or right you know, they're fine or something like that um and there's been a few studies that have tried to compare you know spirits or or kind of white or, or i'm sorry clear liquor versus you know like a whiskey that would be kind of brown or darker in color mm-hmm. versus beer um and, you know, my read of those studies, and there might be others who disagree with this, but my read of those studies is it's kind of equivocal. It's, I, I don't really see really compelling evidence that a particular type of alcohol is mm. going to be the one to trigger aggression and another type of alcohol isn't. Okay. Um, and if, in fact, that, you know, if we were to snap our fingers and conduct the hundred best studies to answer that question. And we, oh, we found out that, you know what, it, it's, it's, it's beer that causes people to be aggressive and not wine and, 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 and more harder, hard liquor. Uh, you know, the reality of that is, okay, that's important to know, but what we know even more is that alcohol, that, that there's a pharmacological effect of alcohol, mm. uh, that at the end of the day, I think regardless of what people are consuming, that that's going to exert the most impact on aggression. There might, maybe there's some additive effect of what you're drinking. Again, I don't, I don't, uh, and I, I would think it, it's evidence for that. Yeah. I think it's so personalized. Uh, I don't think it could be, Oh, well, and everyone drink red wine cause it won't make you aggressive. I think it's yeah. down to that individual person and their that's body right. chemistry. So, yeah. I, you know, I was thinking, well, if this, you know, this person drank, wine or you know someone drank wine and they did okay not that they should be drinking at the level that mm-hmm. that someone that has a severe alcohol problem would drink wine but um but you know maybe yes for them individually if they got a hold of some country's version of moonshine then it, all bets are off but yeah <laughs> part of what you're bringing up is you know i think most people could identify with the idea of if someone has a, an alcohol use disorder that you know, mm-hmm. abstinence is the way to go like right the aa model the alcoholics anonymous model um and you know i don't think you're going to find a few people who will dispute that if someone has an alcohol use disorder that being abstinent you know is the most surefire way right uh, to prevent the problems they've been having um but there's a lot of evidence that supports the fact that people can not be abstinent, but reduce their drinking. And this leads to general what we call harm reduction. Mm. So 
you know, uh, instead of drinking 12 drinks each night, maybe they're drinking two drinks each night. So they're not abstinent, but they're, they're not drinking to levels that are going to be, that are going to lead to a lot of these problems that they're experiencing and problems uh, for others. And the way to think about this is, you know, uh, you know, if, if someone's on the highway and not literally on the highway, but like on the metaphorical highway of trying to change their drinking behavior, there's different exits on that highway. Some of the early exits are reducing your drinking uh, or reducing how often you drink or reducing what you drink to try to limit the negative impacts of your use. But at the end of that highway is the abstinence exit, right? And you know that's always kind of where things are headed. But for some people, they can get off at an earlier exit and be just fine. Um, right. You know, and so it's it's a kind of a person by person approach to see what works for them. And a lot of people change their drinking on their own without any or much help from professionals uh, in, in the mental health or health field and end up doing just fine. Uh, right. I remember Paul Newman talked about and people would try to get him to say, well, are you an alcoholic? Or are you? And he'd say, no, I or he wouldn't even say no. He would just say, I just found I was enjoying it too much. And, you know, like you, you know, you said he was someone that stopped drinking on his own mm -hmm. and didn't want to talk publicly because it was none of the public's business. But anytime right. someone would try to bring that up, um, he's kind of known for, for his way of handling it, which is somewhat like the smart recovery way. Right. Um, you know, uh, who we've interviewed, um, Tom Horvath on the show many times is the founder of Smart Recovery, talking about, you know, how their focus is on the why, we, what's underneath, what's, what are the reasons why we're drinking? Right. They, are, they aren't an abstinence only model, but, um, but yeah, I, I've, I definitely have uh, found that interesting when people, not everyone has to go to AA. Right. Yeah, no, that I, 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 I agree with that completely. Um, uh, yeah. So if we're talking about um, what I'm curious to know too is the, the long-term effect and use, obviously family history of drinking comes into play, genetics, things like that are all studied, I know. But have you seen in your studies where someone gets to a point where either they're behaviorally they are so used to their behavior when from this, you know, lifetime of drinking that they actually believe that it's okay or accepted just because they've been doing it so long and not listen to their daughter, their friend, their whatever that has said, you are an alcoholic or you have a drinking problem. So they've sort of normalized it in their own brain or is it more that uh, they don't, uh, the alcohol has made such changes to brain chemistry that they really don't remember how awful they are when they're inebriated. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. And, you know, I'll, I'll preface by saying that, you know, where, where my work is focused, well, I'll say where my work has not focused and where I, I don't really have that expertise is, you know, it is those alcohol, those long-term effects of alcohol use on kind of brain chemistry and changes in cognition and that sort of thing. Mm, okay. Um, um, but what I would say, um, you know, I, I guess somewhat from an armchair, knowing uh, kind of the research literature on kind of psychological or behavioral interventions for alcohol use disorders, that, you know, a lot of people know what the effect of their drinking is. Okay. Um, so that's not to say all people, right? There's obviously, you know, individual variation and such, but I think most people, my, my impression is that most people who uh, have, have problems with their alcohol use uh, know that it's a problem and know the effects it's having. They might not know fully the effects or, you know, but they have a pretty good sense. Now, you know, there's terms in the field like, you know, denial and, and, right. and people like not accepting what those harms are or trying to rationalize them. Uh, but I think by and large, people kind of know at some level. Um, it's not as if they just have really, really, that's how I am. I didn't, I didn't know that. Right. Um, they've done it enough. They've gotten the feedback. <laughs> they've, they've, they've heard it. 
Right. From, from people who've been on the receive end. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, if somebody's still drinking and experiencing all those sort of problems and having those sort of effects, they really, you know, haven't reached that point or that tipping point where they are ready to make changes. Um, you know, one thing I'll talk to students about is, you know, you know, every, we all do things for a reason pick whatever behavior you engage in drinking or anything else. Like there's a reason you're doing it. Mm-hmm. It might not benefit you in the long term, Right. But there, but there's probably, there's at least a short term reward. And I mean, I mean, alcohol and drug use you know, is, is a great example of that where, you know, people know at some level that they're, it's causing these problems, but there's some other motivation that's at least for that period of time stronger to that, that leads them to continue to drink. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the motivations that you found in your in your research as to why someone would continue? Um, well, you know, again, you know, w- what we're studying in our research is more focused on how alcohol is impacting aggression as mm. opposed to what's motivating problematic alcohol use. Um, but you know, th- there's different motives for people to drink. Um, you know, two examples are. Uh, you know, social motives. So think of, um, you know, somebody who's out with friends and everybody's having some drinks or says, oh, let's go to this club together. And so you're drinking as kind of that social lubricant. That's right. what's kind of impelling you to, to kind of to drink alcohol and maybe to drink more than you want, you know. There's also kind of broadly what we might refer to as coping motives, which is where people, uh, you know, I think a good example of this is people have a lot of negative emotion. Um, and that could be anger, depression, anxiety, etc. And they don't, their way to cope with that is through alcohol because I mean, it's, it's pretty good at that. Alcohol <laughs> reduces our anxiety right? Um, and makes us feel better. Uh, in the for, for a short period, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I mean, it works for that. Um, but is that the way you want to cope with your anxiety? You know, right. Maybe there's some other non-pharmacological, you know, more adaptive ways to cope. Right. And there are ways I think that you can learn, like I now know, okay, well, if someone is extremely angry in their just daily life, they, they're, what they write is very angry and personal. And the way that they talk about other people is very angry and personal and intolerant. If they also tell me that they drink a lot, that is not someone I would want to hang out with. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, in, with respect to aggressive behavior, you kind of hit on one of the kind of key things we've learned in the past few decades with, with research, both work I've done and the work of many others in this area, which is that, um, you know, Who's going to become aggressive when they get drunk? Right. Let's right. go into that. Yeah. It's like one of those million dollar questions. And, um, and <laughs> the short answer is there's no silver bullet answer either. Uh, Cause it, 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 unless the answer can be that it's complicated, but you know, a piece of that, you know, who's going to become most aggressive or who's most likely to be aggressive when they're drinking in many ways comes down to those person that or that person's kind of dispositional tendencies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to paraphrase what you said a moment ago, you know, the person who kind of is really angry all the time or kind of expresses that a lot, you know, if you find out what they, they, they're drinking tonight, like you don't want to be around them. Right. Kind of what you're getting at is that, you know, you, you don't want all those tendencies to come out uh, tenfold. When, when they have a disinhibitor like alcohol in their system. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. we, we oftentimes say, um, that alcohol doesn't push our foot on the gas pedal. Uh, it, it makes us do things we otherwise wouldn't do. That in contrast, what alcohol is really doing is taking our foot off the brake. Mm. Uh, and it's kind of unleashing those underlying tendencies. Um, and whether it's a tendency, you know, 
very specifically towards aggression or whether it's a tendency to be more angry or combative or, or whatever it might be. It's kind of unleashing kind of what's just beneath the surface. Right. I thought that was really interesting too. I, I did have a situation where I wasn't the receiver of the violent behavior, but I was with someone and, um, and you know, you can talk about two people having in the same place and the same experience, but having a much different journey. Yep. I become la 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 happier, you know, that's my natural resting state in life. And then alcohol just enhances my already, hey, you know, the song Red Red Wine, that that would be, you know, typically me. Um, But I was there with a friend and I'm having a great time dancing and having fun. And my friend is getting, is assaulting the bartender with a wine bottle. This is years and years ago and right. getting arrested. And I don't notice cause I'm having so much fun. I don't notice right. what's going on until I see police lights and go is, Oh, she's <laughs> taken away. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And I'm not saying my way or that person's way was any, uh, what do you call it better to your body, to each of our individual bodies, but our behavior, um, where it came out, I'd say that goes into play with some people really cannot drink. Not that any of us should, but they really cannot because they become a danger to society, which is exactly what you. Yeah. And, you know, I I, I really, I mean, thank you for sharing that example because it, it provides a great example to explain why, why two people drinking, and I don't know, whether you know you had more than her about the same amount but um no not not as much i didn't yeah, realize how much i was having wine and she was knocking back vodka and something gotcha. else so well to simplify the example and make it uh you know imagine if you know a scenario where you're both kind of drinking about the same amount mm-hmm. uh you're in the same environment but you have two very different reactions you know one person becomes very aggressive the other person's just having a lot of fun and very kind of carefree and you could also envision a situation where the same person, you know, you drink on Friday night and you're carefree and you drink in a pretty similar environment on Saturday night and you're very aggressive. So you can have these differences between people. You can also have differences within the same person. Right. Um, and, and again, that, that's where the it's complicated comes into play. Right. What what accounts for that? And uh you know, our, our work is informed by a, th- a theory that was proposed um, uh, a few decades ago uh, called alcohol myopia theory. And essentially, this theory states that when people drink, their attentional focus becomes narrowed. And you mentioned how, you know, you were dancing and you didn't notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... You know, I'll infer from that that your attentional focus was probably narrowed to what was really salient and of interest to you, which Mm -hmm. was kind of cues of having fun and the other people on the dance floor and, you know, maybe even internal things internal to yourself. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I really love to do this. I'm going to I'm going to have a great time tonight. You know, like that's something maybe you value or you're looking forward to. And so that's what you're focused on. Um, and, and so that's doing two things. Number one, it's allowing you to have that behavioral and emotional experience of having fun generally. Mm-hmm. But it, it's also, it also means you're not focused on the other stuff going on at the, at the bar or the club. Right. Uh, right. So much so that you don't notice what's going on until there's police lights. Right. You know, and so that's a great example of alcohol myopia. And now we could take that to and apply it to your friend um, and, you know, maybe making some inferences about what, what what's going on with that person. You know, maybe they have a lot of experiences or learned behaviors or attitudes that are really kind of hostile in nature mm-hmm. that yeah. you know, uh, people are out to get you. Um, and oh, that bartender, they, they, they gave me this face. And so they're, they're, they're out to get me. They're going to do something to my drink, you know, or, or what, I mean, you can kind of come up with examples like this. And so when you drink, what cues in the environment are most salient to you? It's these ones that can be interpreted in a hostile way. And if all you're doing is walking around seeing hostile, threatening cues, aggression 
you know, suddenly doesn't seem like such a, um, not, not that it's a, a large cause, leap, but it's not, that's right. It's, it's not too large of a leap anymore. Um, right. So this idea of alcohol myopia kind of explains why alcohol can have so many different effects. You know, if the person's behavior is really driven by their attention to what they're perceiving in their environment, you know, for different people, different cues are going to be more salient um, and for different reasons. Yeah, and that goes all the way back to what we talked about before, which is if that person in their in their life, when you're around them, they're not and they're not drinking, they're angry, hostile. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone's out to get me. I'm the moral authority on everybody's behavior, and I'm going to point out bad behavior in everyone, whatever it may be drinking is more likely to, I guess what you're saying is it doesn't have to, because it depends on person to person, but more likely to enhance their all, their natural resting state behavior, which is this anger or judgment right. or intolerance for other people. Yeah, no, that, that, that's it. You know, we, we published a paper a number of years ago uh, that we called the disguise of sobriety. Mm. Um, to, which essentially kind of uh, provided some empirical support for this idea. Um, and, and that idea of the disguise of sobriety is that it's, you know, when we're sober, we're able to keep some of those things at bay. Right. Um, in, in, in some cases, maybe not. But it's that when we're drinking and alcohol functions as that disinhibitor, um, it helps to unleash some of that. And, you know, the important thing to recognize here, though, is that, again, some people who have those tendencies drink alcohol and those kind of negative or aggressive inclinations don't come out. Right. But it's not invariable. It doesn't happen across every situation. And again, you know, there's variation. There's, it happens for some people more than others. But, but it's this idea that this disinhib- that alcohol functions to disinhibit our behavior uh, but it's also tied to those cues that we're seeing in our environment. In yeah, I found this. I found this interesting with my ex-husband, who is not a drinker by any means. He's actually very opposed to alcohol, and he um, he also can't drink. I mean, meaning he can have half of a beer, and he's loop de loo. You know, he's his system doesn't process it well. But he's someone who tends to be more angry and opinionated and so on in his regular life. But he also is someone that deals with chronic, chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And so for him, I was worried at some point, well, I don't really, I'm glad that he doesn't drink because my God, you know, he would be even more angry potentially. And what was interesting was, no, he became more calm, more relaxed, more the few times that he, that he would and I thought, oh, that's fascinating because it's lessening the pain he's feeling and the pain is what drives his anger. It's not that the underlying disposition of him is this angry person because it isn't. The pain right. drives it. So I, I see what you mean with the, the differences and how it's different for each, you know, for each that's person. Right. Yep, that's right. Mm. Well, in terms of your, you know, with your work, what is, uh, what are some of the outcomes so are, as I know you're, um, you work with uh, Georgia State University, you, right. you're doing work, aggression towards sexual minorities, bystander intervention for sexual violence. I mean, there's so much work that you're doing. Where are you wanting to see this work taken? Well, uh, you know, it, it, it can go in a lot of different directions. Um, and I'll say, Generally, both for myself, but I also think where the field uh, is is going and trying to go is to is to develop better interventions. Um, you know, it's one thing to say, "Hey, you know, alcohol is a contributing cause of violence." Okay, we know that. It's another right. thing to say, you know, in, in who's most susceptible? What situations are people? put people at most risk. And we, we're learning and know a lot more about that than we did years ago. But it hasn't quite translated into really effective interventions, whether at the individual level or kind of the public health level. Um, and, and I think that's a direction we really need to be able to go. Right. And I want people to, listeners to understand, we're not, when, when we say the word violence, and maybe I, I'm sure you mean it this way too, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's, you know, sexual violence, there's physical violence, but please don't knock emotional 
violence and that that is definitely a factor as well. You can be traumatized to your core and in fear of your life by someone's level of emotional violence um, at right. you when they're drunk as well. So it, right. when we say the word violence, or at least when I do, I'm not just talking about physical forms <laughs> of violence. That's right. Uh, and, and when you talk about emotional violence, uh, you know, without the, the person ever touching you. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we, we use, uh, just as a kind of side note, you know, we use the, we define aggression as any behavior that, you know, has an intention to harm the other person who's motivated to avoid it. Mm. Um, and, and so when, when I say any behavior that, you know, that could be the traditional, like a punch or a push, but it, it can be words. It, right. can, it doesn't even have to be words. It can be nonverbal. Right. It can, it's any behavior that has that intention um, that, that, that can cause harm to a person. So I, I very much agree with you in uh, having that broad umbrella uh, in, in terms of what, what sort of behaviors we're talking about. Yeah. And there can be a determinant that I've seen with, with different people and I've certainly heard about where they are so used to their behavior or they're inebriated and they're not really watching their behavior at this point maybe they're going to feel horrible about it the next as they become more sober but where they can blast you and then five minutes later say oh do you want a donut like nothing happened and you're sitting there just like you've just been slammed and they're now asking you if you want a piece of pie or some peanuts and you're just like did you not just witness yourself screaming at me in front of a thousand other people you know And there's no connection there when right. they're drinking. And maybe there isn't a connection there when they aren't drinking, too. It could be that, they're, that they are actually that aggressive without the alcohol, and right. you just don't know. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, uh, you know, and, and if I can, just to kind of go back, you're asking about kind of like future directions. Uh, mm-hmm. Absolutely. One of them is absolutely... Uh, I'll just say broadly, kind of intervention development. Um, uh, two other areas where I think the field needs to go and where our work has been focused more specifically uh, is first, um, you know, I've done a lot of work with, with couples uh, and in violence within intimate relationships. But up until about a, a year ago, that was really focused on heterosexual couples and opposites couples who were uh, opposite gender male assigned and female assigned to birth right right but we are we are decades behind when we think about sexual and gender minority relate intimate relationships right um, and uh, we have a project that we just started in the last year focused on uh, on that population and how alcohol and minority stress um, play into uh, violence in those relationships. Um, so I think that's an area that just needs all the best science that we can give it. Um, absolutely. I mean, especially, yes, absolutely. There's so we. My experience is nothing in comparison to what some of my friends who are in the LGBTQI plus community have dealt with. And my friends who are minorities have dealt with, it's at a whole other level of hatred and, fear that they've yeah. uh, dealt with um, just yeah. by nature of their sexual orientation and uh, their um, skin color or their religious belief or, you know, that's right. And, and when, and the, you know, among many other, you know, issues is the fact that, you know, we do live in a heteronormative society mm-hmm. and we can't, expect that what we're learning from largely heterosexual cisgender couples is just going to apply to a sexual gender minority person or uh, or a couple. And so, you know, there's certainly, you know, risk factors or protective factors that are common across all relationships, you know, like relationship commitment and satisfaction, you know, or... The, someone's ability to cope with negative emotion, you know, some of those factors kind of cut across these, these different groups. 
but there's also factors that are very specific and unique to sexual and gender minorities. And, and the big one there is, is, is stigma um, and yeah. their experience of stigma and whether the extent to which they internalize that and then how that compounds the stressors that any couple is already coping with uh, and how that can lead to alcohol use how that alcohol use can then lead to violence or vice versa. So, you know, I, I, we need we need work in that area, and that's something that uh, we've been focusing on of late. Um, I'm so glad you're doing it because you're absolutely right. When you say 10 years behind, you are right on the money. I mean, yeah. it is so behind in those areas. And sadly, we will not go down this road. I'll just put one statement out there. We don't have a lot of support with our current administration on studying this kind of violence either. Right. Yeah, no, I, I hear you on that. Um, uh, I, I will say, you know, I, I, a lot of my work is funded by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, mm -hmm. which is an institute within the NIH. And uh, they, they've taken some, um, uh, they've made some strides in trying to bring alcohol researchers together who study sexual and gender minorities um, to kind of get them talking about their work and how they can kind of, um, I mean, it, it, in my business, like talking with other researchers, even if they don't do exactly what you do, is really helpful in informing how you think about things and, and how you approach um, your, your research and how you interpret data and that sort of thing. And so kind of starting to get these folks networked together, NIAAA's um, been making some efforts in that regard. Uh, and there are a couple NIAAA funded projects focused on uh, uh, violence within LGBT couples. Right. Uh, so, the, it, it, but all in the past couple years, you know, the, right. this, this is all just starting. Uh, Which is unreal, but I, I, I understand. I'm, I'm glad that it, at least it started. It's just, yeah. uh, it's just fascinating that only in the last couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. W with respect to violence to just, right. yeah, there's I mean, right. people have been studying, uh, doing research in this area for a long time, but just certainly with respect to violence and alcohol use. The other area that we're really focusing on, and you mentioned this earlier was bystander intervention for sexual violence. Mm. And, um, Explain what that means, just for our yeah, listeners have a... Sure. So, um, traditionally, uh, research and intervention efforts to reduce sexual violence perpetration, which is most typically thought of as a male-to-female perpetrated sexual violence situation, although you can interchange male and female in different ways. It, sexual violence occurs in, 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 in all those sort of dyadic combinations, but male to female sexual violence for good reason is uh, oftentimes the primary focus. Traditionally, we've either uh, worked with perpetrators to try to get them to stop or worked with victims to try to get them to help reduce their risk or be more vigilant uh, or be more aware in these situations. But the kind of paradigm shift that really happened in you know, the last let's just say 20 years, is this idea that in a lot of situations that precede sexual violence perpetration, there's other people around, and these are the bystanders. Um, and, and just to be clear about what I'm talking about, I'm not talking about, well, I'm talking about the kind of classic rape scenario. Mm -hmm. where, or, or think of a date rape scenario, people at a party and the man's, you know, trying to coerce or take advantage of a female and kind of gets her into the back room and she's kind of drunk and stumbling and there's people around. Like, right. So that happens. Right. But I'm not talking about just that. There's a continuum of sexual violence where the scenario I just described is kind of towards the more severe end of that continuum. But there's also another end of the continuum um, that's equally important where maybe the female isn't even in the room. Maybe there's a couple of guys talking at five o'clock on a Friday at a bar about, oh, is so-and-so going to be at that party? And, you know, uh, you know, I, I, you know, she, she really wants me and I'm, I, I'm going to do every, you know, and they, they start talking about what they plan to do. Right. What, kind of implying or maybe being explicit that no matter what she says, this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. That's a bystander intervention opportunity. Mm not there 
the threat is not eminent or, or proximal to that exact situ to that situation. But the other guy, one of the other guys there could intervene and say, that's not cool, man. Yeah. Well, or find a, a, a way to say, hey, I'm going to hang out with you all night tonight yeah. <laughs> to make sure that doesn't happen or something to that. Like there's different strategies people can use. We don't need to get into all those details. But the point is, is there's a lot of opportunities for intervention that can prevent sexual violence, you know, downstream or upstream of the, of, of the sexual assault. Uh, so that's kind of what we mean um, when we talk about bystander intervention. And there's been a lot of work in this area, programs developed um, uh, that have a lot of evidence to support them. But what I'll focus on here is what I see as a key limitation, which is that in, in many sexual assault situations, alcohol use is present. Right. Um, it, either the victim's been drinking, the perpetrator's been drinking, both have been drinking, and the people in the environment are drinking, the bystanders are drinking. Mm. So, uh, so for instance, we just published a paper with some colleagues at Nebraska, which uh, 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 surveyed women who had been sexually assaulted. And we asked them a whole range of questions about that situation and that experience. And one of the things we asked them was in situ, you know, for those women where there were other people around prior to the assault, we asked them how many of them were drinking. And it was like upwards of 80%. So this begs the question if, if we're uh, disseminating interventions, for instance, on college campuses about how to be a better bystander and how to be a better uh, pro-social member of your university community, you know, and how to speak up. All, all this, that's all great um, and needs to happen. Uh, so I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing that, but what we don't know is when people learn all of this and are made more aware of all of this, does it actually work when they get into those drinking situations, given everything we know about how alcohol affects people? Mm -mm. Um, and I'm not saying it isn't effective, but I'm not saying it is. I'm saying we don't know. Right. Um, because nobody's developed content that tells people, hey, you know, by the way, this is probably this, when you run into the situation, you might be drinking or someone's going to be drinking. And there's going to be an alcohol context. And here's how alcohol can prevent you or inhibit you from being a better bystander. Right. Um, so we're trying to do that. We're just starting that work. Well, I don't want to say we're just starting it. We've started in the last few years and we're continuing it kind of. In, in, in scale and in scope and trying to develop intervention content that's specific to how alcohol could affect bystanders. That should be on every college campus everywhere. If, if the evidence supports it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. then yeah, you know, check with me in five years. And then if the evidence supports it, I'll say, yeah, this needs to be on every college campus or something informed by it. Um, yeah, that was me. That was me. The friend that was like, don't go, I know we've been drinking or whatever, or we're having fun, um, not, you know, not involving substances, uh, not, oh, whatever. And there was heroin. I don't mean it that way. Just mean it. I was that friend that was like, don't go. This looks dangerous. Taking people in the bathroom or holding someone's head over a toilet or whatever. And I didn't care who would get angry with me, but I was way in the minority. Yep. Yeah. And, and the aim of a lot of these bystander programs is to it's really about changing norms right when you said you're really in the minority the norm and and i, I know when i was in college years ago that that i think i was under the same norm as, as you were talking about that you just didn't do that you know and you didn't speak up about that sort of stuff very few people did right and these programs are trying to change the culture and the, and the norms on campuses so that ah. becomes the thing to do right that makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. And, and that's why it's not just applied in relevant when a guy's about to take a drunk girl into the back room. It's right. why it's applied when a guy's, you know, before class starts, you know, before the 9 a.m. lecture starts and he makes a misogynistic joke, you should speak up against that. Right, exactly. So that then, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because the letting those things pass, those contribute to that a sort of culture 
that um, uh, can I want to say kind of support or sanction absolutely male violence towards women absolutely so ah so much to talk about <laughs> thank you though um, Dominic Perot for coming on and having this conversation I want listeners to know where they can find out more about you so um, everyone you can go to violence.gsu for Georgia State University so violence.gsu.edu to find out more information about this research and everyone that is working with you on the research and um, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show not a problem thanks again for having me Absolutely. And listeners, thank you for tuning in to another edition of Mental Health News Radio. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous. And they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Sometimes I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you I can fight it. Good boy.